everyone. Welcome back to the Advara in Conversation with podcast. Today we're going to be touching on what I think is a very timely topic, that of monkeypox and the current state of clinical research for this sort of unfolding epidemic. I'm Luke Jelinas. I'm a senior executive IRB chair at Advara, and I'm very happy to introduce today's guest, Dr. Tim Wilkin. Thanks, Luke. Yes, I'm Dr. Tim Wilkin. I'm the assistant dean for clinical research compliance at Weill Cornell Medicine. I'm also an infectious disease doctor, and more relevant for today, I'm a study chair for an upcoming clinical trial on ticoviramat for the treatment of human monkeypox disease. Excellent. Great. Nice to have you. Let's jump in. So it seems as though just when we were getting past sort of the worst of the COVID-19 pandemic, we started hearing rumblings about monkeypox. So I'm wondering if we could just sort of start with sort of the clinical basics. I wonder if you could maybe explain in layman's terms for someone who doesn't have any or, or much clinical background, what monkeypox is, is it new, what's it look like, sort of what should we be worried about, and so on. Sure. So monkeypox is not a new virus. It's actually been described since 1958, and it actually has very little to do with monkeys. We, we don't know where monkeypox lives, the, what we call the reservoir. So somewhere in nature, there's an animal that carries this virus that can then transmit to humans. So the virus is endemic in parts of Africa, meaning that it's something that they see routinely. And it can present with an initial stage of feeling poorly, fever, lymph node swelling, and then people generally develop a typical rash of small bumps that turn into pustules that can turn into sores and really be quite severe. It's an interesting virus. It's related to smallpox. So as people know, smallpox is the one virus that we've eradicated from the earth, but it's still a concerning infection for bioterrorism. So this led people, particularly the U.S. government, to develop drugs to treat smallpox. And that's what the drug that we're studying, Ticoviramat, was designed for. And because they're closely related viruses, we think that Ticoviramat will treat human monkeypox disease. So what's interesting, what's happened recently is that a type of monkeypox, a, a clade of this virus, has begun being transmitted among men who have sex with men primarily. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is that it's presenting in a different way than monkeypox has been known to present. It can present with what we call proctitis, so severe rectal pain and bleeding. It's presenting with a lot of genital lesions, as well as mouth lesions. And fortunately, it doesn't seem to be life-threatening for the vast, vast majority of people. So out of approximately 50,000 people that have been infected in this pandemic, there have been about four deaths that have been documented. So it seems to be an emerging pandemic, and we're keeping our eyes open for what's going to happen next. So as you mentioned, you have a NIAID-funded study. I believe it's called STOMP. I want to ask you about that for sure. Maybe before we, we do that, to kind of set the stage a little bit, I'm wondering if, and you've already started to do this a little bit, if you could say more about sort of the current therapeutic landscape with respect to monkeypox. Are there any currently FDA-approved vaccines for preventing monkeypox? Are there any therapies FDA approved or otherwise perhaps interventions or drugs that are being used off label? And what do things look like in terms of a patient who comes to you for help? Sure. 
Great questions. So as far as prevention, there are two vaccines that were developed for the prevention of smallpox. There's one that we're using the Genios vaccine primarily in the U.S. That's given as two injections about four weeks apart. So we know that the vaccine is safe and we know that it can lead to antibodies that have been shown to protect against monkeypox infection. However, we don't really have any data in humans to say that it works. Mm. So one thing that is, I think, a little bit missed in the messaging is the what's unknown about the vaccination. And while we expect it to prevent monkeypox infection, we don't have the same level of evidence that we do for, say, the COVID vaccines, for example. Yeah. So that being said, I fully recommend vaccination if you're identified as a person in need of it. But that's just something to keep in mind that we don't really have yeah, high level data on on that on the efficacy. So you've told us a little bit about the vaccine. What about sort of for therapies for someone who shows up um, in your office and is symptomatic? Do we have approved sort of therapies for treating it? There are, I guess, four therapies. One that I don't know so much about is vaccinia immune globulin. So there's a virus vaccinia that can be used as a vaccine against smallpox. And in some cases, the vaccine strain can disseminate and cause problems. So there's a preparation of antibodies that can help clear that disease and infection. So that's an option. But uh, much easier to implement would be medications. So there's two other ones besides uh, ticoviramab. There's a drug called cidofavir that's used to treat CMV disease. And then there's a kind of derivative of that called brincidofavir that is also used to treat CMV disease. So cidofavir is very toxic. I've only used it a couple of times in my career and, you know, Mm It causes significant kidney problems. So that given that, you know, the vast majority of people recover without consequence, the risk benefit doesn't favor cytofavir. So I don't think that's really be considered, but brincidofavir is much, much better tolerated. It's been used in a few people with human monkeypox disease. However, there was a development of liver problems. It's not clear if it was exactly related to the drug or perhaps a human monkeypox infection. So that is still on the table to be considered. But I think people are most excited about ticoviramat because it targets a very specific part of the life cycle of this family of viruses. Hmm. And there's much more of a rationale for why this would be effective. So there's great data in animal models of orthopoxin virus infections but we really don't have any efficacy data in people. Got it. So it sounds like the Tico Verma is sort of the most promising sort of candidate that we have so far. And, and that's the intervention you're studying, correct? Correct. And what's really interesting is that because we've had access through the expanded access IND through the CDC, mm-hmm. many of our investigators in the study have a really good feel for the drug and have used it and you know, 50 people or so each. So we do have a sense that the drug is very well tolerated and seems to be efficacious, but there's no control data. Yeah, very interesting. So I wonder if you want to take a moment and just tell us about this study, kind of maybe go into a little bit of detail on sort of how it's designed, 
and then maybe discuss some of the challenges you faced in designing it and then in running it. Sure. Thanks. So it's been a whirlwind to get the study <laughs> up and running. I'll just start with that. I work with the AIDS Clinical Trials Group, which is part of the NIAID, part of the NIH, and our clinical trials group was asked to run this trial or develop and execute this trial. Our main concerns going into this is that we know that people can develop severe complications from the virus. So I mentioned the eye problems. There can be deep scarring on the face lots of problems that can develop. We knew that ticoviramat was available, had a good rationale for being effective, and we knew that people were already starting to access this through the expanded access IND. We also were concerned about where the epidemic would evolve. Would it stay primarily with men who have sex with men, or would it generalize to other populations? So we really wanted to have a very inclusive study and to balance the need for efficacy data with the thought that ticoviramat was, it's very promising and safe. Yeah. So what we did was we first defined the population for the study. So basically people with human monkeypox disease and something that could be followed. It's basically a three-arm study. So there's a blinded ticoviramat, placebo for ticoviramat, or open-label ticoviramat. Right. So our main question that we wrestled with was, who do we feel is appropriate for randomization and who do we think we should just give open-label ticoviramat to? So we defined a definition of severe disease. So this included people with disease in the eye, lesions on the face that could be potentially scarring, people who were already hospitalized for this infection because of pain or other reasons, people who had very deep ulcers that were requiring intervention. So those people, we just said, you know what, we don't need to have them in the randomized group. Let's mm -hmm. just provide them open label drug. Then there were also a group of people that were at risk for severe disease just by their own personal health status. So people with severe immunosuppression, people who have inflammatory skin conditions that we know that other viruses in this family can Basically, they can just get incredibly rapid disease. So we thought it better just to provide them open-label drug. And then there were groups of people where the main question was not necessarily, is it efficacious, but how do we dose it? So children get infected with monkeypox in Africa all the time. And there have been probably about 20 children in the U.S. already that have been diagnosed with monkeypox. And really, we don't have any data on the pharmacokinetics of the drug in children, especially younger children, lower body weight. So for, for children, we thought it better just to give them all ticoviramat and really focus on understanding the pharmacokinetics and safety in that group. Mm. In addition, people who are pregnant or breastfeeding, we opted to provide access because we know that, well, we think that human monkeypox disease is, is more aggressive in pregnancy and the pregnancy outcomes, neonatal outcomes are poor in Africa. So we thought it's just better to give those people the choice of whether they want to receive ticoviramat rather than putting them in a blinded study. Yeah. So that was the broad outline. People who we did not feel were appropriate for randomization just received open label ticoviramat. And then the efficacy question focuses on those that were eligible for randomization. Let me ask just a, a clarification. So it sounds sure. like 
the open label sort of arm is not necessarily an arm that people were randomized to. It's an arm that you sort of allocated people to based on, you know, their status or their vulnerability, perhaps. Yes. Something like that. Okay, exactly. Got it. Sorry. Um, so that, yeah. that's, that's really interesting. And I'm not sure. It seems also to me pretty novel and cutting edge. So one of the challenges we always have when there's a placebo, especially when there might be, you know, available alternatives, and certainly something we really wrestled with, with COVID-19, especially once the vaccine studies, you know, the vaccines were shown to work, was randomizing someone to a placebo when you might have other good options available. So I think that kind of the, the study design that you've just described seems to at least some extent mitigate that problem. So you're basically saying like the people who really need the alternative therapy in some sense, we're going to make that available in an open label cohort. But those for whom, you know, there's not the same perhaps pressing concern or who are a little bit healthier, those are the ones who are sort of randomized to active versus placebo. Arm. I think that's a really nice way of, of dealing with ethical tension. Yes, you absolutely have it right. And I think the first thing that we did was to recognize there is an ethical tension here and there is our desire as providers to treat our individual patients with a drug that we think risk-benefit ratio probably favors treatment yeah. versus the need to get efficacy data. I, I just, I think it's problematic if we were to consider, oh, just saying, oh, well, let's just use the drug. We don't have controlled data. And then suddenly that becomes the standard of care. And if there's problems with the drug resistance or other need to develop a new therapy, you don't have that basis to understand, is this efficacious in the first place? Or you don't have convincing data to say that it's efficacious or how efficacious it is. So the FDA has felt very strongly that we have to have controlled data. And that having controlled data is really the only way that we can get to a place where it's simply writing a prescription that's filled at the pharmacy to treat this infection. Right yeah. now, it's a complicated process to get it. And you know, we also did other things to kind of mitigate that ethical tension. So we have said that if you are in the blinded part of the study, you're going along and to be in that part of the study, you can't have severe disease at baseline, but say then two days later, you're hospitalized or you develop an eye lesion. We then stop the blinded treatment and then you just start a course of open label ticobiramat. So it's sort of like finely specified individual withdrawal criteria almost, right? Yes. If people kind of deteriorate, we're going to get you into that open label arm. Yes. I think that's a really nice statement of the tension. I mean, because this is kind of a topic in the bioethics literature. I'm sure you feel it even more acutely as a clinician between, on the one hand, having a product that's available via these sort of right to try expanded access and sort of knowing that perhaps it's safe. We don't really know, it seems to be efficacious, but we don't really have great data that's efficacious and sort of the desire to treat the patient in front of you on the one hand versus you know the need to really get that good efficacy data that you can only get through a randomized trial. I thought that was a really nice statement of it. And that must be a difficult tension to navigate in, your, in clinical life. Yeah, and we are seeing that with our sites. So the vast majority of sites we've approached have chosen to be a part of the study, but we've had a few sites that have, whoever is running the site doesn't feel comfortable with the ethics of randomization. I mean, I personally think it's clearly reasonable to approach someone about this study. Whether individuals would choose to do this versus accessing through the expanded access program 
we want, we really wanted to leave that to be an individual choice. So, you know, we tried to address the concerns as best we can, but fundamentally we believe there needs to be a placebo controlled assessment of the efficacy. And it's also because what I didn't really discuss yet is what is the outcome? Like, Mm -hmm. what are we measuring? What are Mm -hmm. we assessing? And so there are no completed studies of human monkeypox virus disease. So, you know, there's no precedent about what's the clear endpoint that one should use. There was a trial that should start soon in the Democratic Republic of Congo that's using this drug to treat the clade of the virus that circulates in that area. And so fortunately, they had spent a long time kind of discussing and figuring out what would be the most reasonable endpoint so that a lot of that work had been done. And so we just adopted their endpoint. And so we're looking at the time from randomization to what we're calling clinical resolution. So that is following all of the skin lesions, the lesions in the mouth to the point that they're all reach a certain level of healing. Yeah. So that's what we're comparing between the two arms. And so we think that by having the healing shortened by three days, that that would be a clinically meaningful benefit. And that's how we powered the study. Sure. I guess that's, that's a surefire indication that you're a trailblazer in the field when there are no established endpoints and you're coming up with them on your own. So congrats on that. Yeah. And I don't want to give the impression that we developed this. That was clearly mm-hmm. the investigators from the NIH sponsored study in the Congo called the uh, palm trial. And then there's a study that just started that's interesting in the UK that has a similar endpoint, but it's uh, 100% remote. So it's all self-assessment. So our study is using self-assessment by the participants as well as video visits and in-person visits to really document the healing. So as an IRB chair, I have to ask you, did you have any trouble getting this through the IRB or what was the IRB's reaction to, you know, to the ethical issues you've been describing? So, I mean, the approval, there's the approval within dates. There's the kind of FDA interactions and not exactly approval, but their viewpoints on the study as well as the IRB. So as part of our NIH review, fortunately, they included a medical ethicist who Mm -hmm. gave us really terrific feedback about the study and really about how we justify the overall design. The FDA was highly involved. What we did was, first of all, let them know, this is coming along. There's a lot going on here. We need your opinions rapidly and, you know, several times along the way. So we got a pre-review. They were initially concerned about including pregnant women because it is so different, right? Typically... Mm Pregnant women and children tend to get left behind in clinical research. And so there's needed data that really isn't collected for a long time because of concerns about conducting research in that and those vulnerable populations. So I think they wanted a very firm rationale, which I totally understand. And so we provided that the known pregnancy outcomes, you know, why we were including them, the fact that, you know, people had the choice to be in the study or not. And and so those issues were worked out as we were getting the final protocol submitted. But other than that, you know, just suggestions about clarity of language and other things, but that was the main point that they came back to us with. So you mentioned FDA. I imagine you're working pretty closely with them. What's been sort of your experience there? Is your sense that they're treating monkeypox with sort of due urgency, any lessons or any eye-opening situations or experiences with them? 
you know, I've been in clinical research for 20 years or so, and I've always had good experiences with the FDA, but I have to say I was incredibly impressed with all my interactions with the FDA. So at our first meeting, we gave them sort of a list of questions. They had experts in every relevant area on the call prepared with specific recommendations. It was very impressive. They were the ones that really encouraged us to include children in the study. And once we included children, to include the full range of children all the way down to neonates, should that be necessary. And just really said, why are you excluding people on medications that could induce the metabolism of ticoviramat? You know, it's a a subtle group, but why don't you provide them ticoviramat, but just give them open label ticoviramat so you can look at the PK interactions. So they really pushed us and were very supportive and provided us expert opinions about a whole range of topics multiple times during the development. And this was all over the course of the whole protocol was developed over the course of four to six weeks. Wow. Yeah. And it, it, it was amazing. So we had our first meeting July 21st. We have our first sites that have it approved by Advera, their own local approvals and are ready to hopefully enroll on the Friday the 9th. Yeah. Um, hopefully. Exciting. Yeah. And so it's just in addition to the FDA, the full resources of NIAD, NIH, and it's just been really, really gratifying to see so many people put their whole effort into getting this protocol up and running in a timely manner so we could really get this needed data out as soon as possible. I mean, that's how it should be ideally, right? But too often probably isn't. I wanted to ask you to maybe try to draw out some comparisons or see if you think there are any comparisons between kind of research on monkeypox and research on COVID-19. And, you know, a ton has been written about kind of the research community's response to COVID-19. Clinical research seems to be in the public eye like never before. People actually kind of understand like what an IRB is now to some extent, or at least yes. sort of they seem a lot more willing to kind of engage in these conversations and interested about it. I would love to hear your thoughts as someone who's been doing this for a while about how, if at all, COVID has changed the research landscape Yeah, I mean, great question and super interesting to have gone through this as a clinical researcher. So I would say that our current response and how quickly we've gotten the study up and running would not have been possible if we hadn't had the experience of COVID. Yeah, there's a ton of parallels. So, I mean, they're both transmissible viruses. And so the whole idea of, you know, how do you physically conduct the research? We didn't really spend any time thinking about it because people had already figured it out with COVID. We said offhandedly at the investigator meeting, oh, and it's probably a great idea to do remote consenting ahead of time so you can take your time and you know not use up the space. And sites already know how to do that and know yeah. how to do it in an FDA compliant manner because of COVID. And certainly the FDA has lived through that experience and so, you know, knows the importance of getting the research up and running in a timely manner. So I, I think we are much better prepared now yeah. than we were prior to COVID. And just to note, those are hopefully changes that will persist, right? It's sort of yes. like now that the research community's got the hang of the whole e-consent thing, that's just become a standard tool in your toolbox. Absolutely. Um, I mean, there's just, there's a whole number of reasons why that makes a lot of sense for a lot of people. It's been very interesting. And one thing that's different about this is that at the beginning of COVID, there were, you know, what, 
like a hundred different things that were being studied. Here, it's much more limited. As far as I know, this is the only U.S. trial of Ticoviramat. So it is much more contained and controlled. Interesting. That was going to be my next question, because we saw such a proliferation in the first year of COVID in clinical research for everything. And it seems like people were, not to be crass, but throwing stuff at the wall, repurposing things and, you know, seeing what would stick. So Absolutely. it sounds like there hasn't been quite the same proliferation of clinical research generally on monkeypox. No, I mean, I think it was this unique situation where this drug had already been developed I believe by the CDC and the U.S. government for treatment of smallpox, should it be used as a bioterrorism agent and to treat disseminated vaccinia, a type of immunization against smallpox. So it was already sitting there and it already had, you know, safety data and looked great. So it was almost shelf ready. It actually was shelf ready because they had a stockpile of it. Nice. So like 90% of the work had been done already to get a new therapy in. So yeah, it was a unique situation. One of the kind of perennial concerns in clinical research generally is enrolling enough people to (laughs) to power your study. And sort of, if you look at the data here, rates of under-enrollment are kind of sadly generally high. A lot of studies start and then don't finish. Any concerns about enrolling enough people into STOMP? Yes. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I mean, I've had studies that have enrolled like amazingly fast and others that have languished and are still languishing. So I've personally experienced the full gamut. So there's a lot that's unknown about the enrollment. First of all, we have our estimates that were used to power the study, but those estimates, you know, are not, there's not a whole lot of data to inform the choice of them. So there's that issue. There's the fact that this pandemic has kind of exploded in the U.S. and seems to be on the way down, which is terrific. So there could be a dwindling population, which is a great problem for us to have as a country. And then there's also this added challenge of, will people really choose to access the drug through the expanded access program? Right. So there's a lot that's unknown. So to address that, the NIH made the strategic decision early that they want to include a large number of sites. So we're really trying to include 80 sites in the U.S. And then there are a few international sites that we think could be brought on as well. Okay. So that's what we can do. We'll follow it and you know make adjustments as we need to, to try to facilitate accrual. This is kind of where that tension on the availability of something like Tegavarimat through an expanded access pathway starts to bite, right? Because you worry about it, frankly, or you might worry about it, siphoning away people from the clinical trial. And I know that some bioethicists do worry about it. It's interesting, if you look at the FDA regulations, there's sort of this clause that says, you know, in order for expanded access to be appropriate, it can't interfere with the clinical development of that drug. And I I always wonder if that's sort of something that's ever enforced by institutions. In other words, you might say, look, we're not going to make this drug available through the expanded access pathway because we have this clinical trial and we think it's really important to power. I don't think that's something that sort of would be popular. And I think that the patient groups would probably react pretty strongly to it. But I wonder if you have thoughts on that. Well, I mean, that was really why we designed the study the way that we did and, you know, to try to address those very valid concerns. I haven't taken care of many patients with human monkeypox, mainly because I've been working on this protocol, but, you know, I mean, people are suffering and it's scary and there's groups of people that have 
really severe disease and could have lasting complications. So it's just something that we discussed at length and was really the central question of how we designed the study. So my whole goal is to get the study enrolled quickly so we don't have to really entertain that or the FDA doesn't have to entertain that that right. possibility. But yeah, from my understanding, that is a possibility. Yeah, fingers crossed. One of my hopes is that kind of the role that COVID has played in kind of raising the public profile of clinical research will result in more people in the public coming to understand how important that clinical research is and will result in higher volunteer rates. But I think that's what remains to be seen. I think a lot of people said, look, if we can get these vaccines approved so quickly on the basis of, you know, big phase three trials, why can't we move this quickly for other devastating, debilitating diseases? And I think to some extent, that's a fair question. Yeah, I think it's a great question. If you look long, long term, I mean, the FDA did change pretty radically with the HIV epidemic. Mm-hmm. You know, so the activists really put pressure and stormed the FDA and said, you know, taking three years to approve a drug isn't acceptable when we're all dying from it. And so I think the FDA did make changes. They have their kind of faster track status for things yep. that are breakthrough or, you know, I'm no expert on it, but they have made modifications. And I think it is important just to say for the COVID vaccinations, it wasn't as if steps were skipped. They were kind of layered on each other and done in a way that was much, much faster, but it was also much riskier and more expensive, but completely warranted in the situation. So, you know, who knows if that'll generalize to other things, but I think it is critically important for people, consumers to be involved and to understand and to make their voices heard because it does affect change. And so if the government should be responding to the priorities of the people and people need to just speak up about it. Well, that's well said and perhaps a nice note to end on. Dr. Wilkin, it's been fascinating, very gracious, grateful for you joining us on this episode of Advarian Conversations with. I would love to convince you to come back on once your research is complete and to share its results with our listeners. I would love to, and hopefully that will be very soon in the future. Thank you, Luke. I really enjoyed the conversation. Okay, that's all for this week's episode. Thanks everyone for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, please keep a lookout on Advara's social channels and on advara.com for our next episode. Bye-bye.